why are fossil fuel lobbyists also allowed to work for communities, schools, businesses, and nonprofit organizations being harmed by the climate crisis without declaring their conflict of interest? Why divestment from fossil fuels should include divesting from lobbyists that play for both sides? James Browning is a public interest advocate, most recently as communications director for Global Energy Monitor, for whom he created the Fossil Fuel Lobbyist, a first-of-its-kind roll-up of state lobbyist data that tracks the extent to which fossil fuel lobbyists are representing companies and organizations being harmed by the climate crisis. Browning previously worked for 10 years as state and regional director for Common Cause and wrote Deep Drilling, Deep Pockets, a series of reports about the fracking industry that was featured on MSNBC and NPR. He's the author of The Fracking King, a novel that was named one of the best 100 books of 2014 by Amazon. Most recently, Browning is the founder and executive director of F-. James Browning, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you. So you have this exciting new database, F-, but what's interesting for us is that you're also a novelist. You wrote The Fracking King, which is an informative way of engaging people's minds around fracking. And so before we go into your activist environmental projects, I believe you've selected a passage from The Fracking King. So Fracking King is a novel about a Scrabble prodigy or a Scrabble freak. That's all he's really interested in. And he's at a boarding school and he learns that the school is being fracked for natural gas, which causes some interesting side effects like flaming tap water. So here's the beginning of the book. The first person I ever saw light water on fire was my old roommate, Rich. The sight of flaming tap water scared the hell out of me. But Rich was from Ohio and had seen whole rivers burn. Like many great discoveries at our sad, cold boarding school in northeastern Pennsylvania, Rich made his by accident. He was smoking by the sink when the water burst into flame and an orange fireball shot up to the ceiling. In a flash, I thought about all the times I'd seen my friend fall asleep with a lit cigarette in his mouth. The time he stubbed one out, but then flicked it out the window at a gas station. I won't say it made sense that he could light water on fire, but I felt this must be it and that the fearless, foolish Richard finally be burned alive. Dude, we are going to rock this thing. See you soon, Richard Erlocker. It's my fault that I got this message three months late. Too late to ask the Hale School for a different roommate. I got my own phone in June, a jitterbug designed for senior citizens, and spent the summer feeling bad that no one had called me. Finally, I called the phone company and was told that all my calls and messages were going to a man named Crow. My name is Winston Crute, and most people called me Wynn. The Crute came to America from Wales a long time ago, and most had the good sense to change their name to Crowther, Crow, or McWhorter. Crute was so ugly that people assumed it must be a typo. Teachers who knew how to say things like prefix or kung would stare at Crute, shake their heads, and ask me to say my name. Crute, I'd say it rhymes with truth. Oster with a U, no, it's with a W. I straightened things out with the phone company and was sitting in the car when I got Richard's text. My father was driving me to Hale for the start of my junior year, and my phone was almost drained from searching for a signal in the endless mountains. I had been hazed at each of my last two schools, the thugs at Hannah Penn making fun of my Scrabble words and the flakes of Clovis Friends publishing my Scrabble words in the school newspaper as if they were poetry, and now had a bad feeling that I would be rock. Hail in cold country and had just leased a lot of its land, dark oil and gas. A school whose existence had always been precarious had suddenly struck it rich, and they gave me one of their new dark scholarships. Dark fracked for natural gas in the hills above the Hale School, and while I didn't really know what fracking was, I knew it involved drilling through a mile or more of rock. 
It's so interesting that, you know, we get involved, we understand the way that fracking in this school, in this community, and it's affecting the cows, milk, and everything bordering this river. And that was published in 2014. But you set up a lot of these conflicts of interest, like there's a newspaper that is a fracking newspaper, people who are supposed to be the truth tellers, you can't trust that information. So that was something that was a focus of your interest, even before you started this F minus. Right. And in this fracked world at the Hill boarding school, even the poets are complicit in the fracking. There is a teacher there who interests him because he writes like found poetry that he finds in bathroom stalls or other unlikely locations. But it turns out even his position is partially funded by the company fracking. The hero is obsessed with language and obsessed with Scrabble to the point that he has a hard time functioning in the real world when he's not on a Scrabble board. But the bridge to the real world for him becomes just the word fracking, which is a really interesting word. It's a contraction of hydraulic fracturing, which is the process that the oil and gas industry developed so they could get at these gas deposits that are about a mile underground. And this is about 15 years ago in Pennsylvania, the beginning of our fracking boom. And the industry realized that they had made a mistake with this word, because unlike a lot of the kind of double speak and propaganda we get around fossil fuels, fracking sounds bad. It sounds obscene and it alarms people when they hear it. And so for the hero of the book, sure, these things are bad, but he's actually most concerned that it's not even in the dictionary, right? So it seems like a lie. It's interesting. The names that we give things like having fracking in the dictionary, the names help bring the messages across clearly or they help muddy the waters. I was mentioning to you, we just a few days ago had the conversation with David Fenton his uh, public relations and the good side of it against climate change and a number of social causes. And we were discussing just these simple words like climate change can seem so like, I'd like to change. It's not global warming. It's not the planet is boiling. It's like change and change is necessary. And we think it's a word, but it can be quite deceptive in the way it prepares our minds for things that are really unacceptable. Right. We call it the climate crisis now, but if we had been doing that 20 or 30 years ago, we might be in a different place now. I'm doing this new group called F minus, which tracks fossil fuel lobbyists and look at the extent to which they also represent people being harmed by the climate crisis. You know, we started with the words fossil fuels, which I think are really inadequate to describe what's going on. And they're really insufficiently alarming for kids like fossil evokes dinosaurs, fuel is what you put in your car to something else entirely that's going on here. And then compounding this problem was we are looking at lobbyists, which is also a very kind of anodyne where you don't really get alarmed when you hear that. It just seems boring. Like you're going to be stuck waiting in the lobby. And until you put this all together, fossil fuel lobbyists, you know, it's quite deadly. And why would you want to spend your time on that. And so we decided to start stripping away the hacking at the word. And eventually all we were left with is the letter F, which anyone who's gone to school, anyone who has a kid in school in the U.S. where the grades are eight through F, there is a visceral terror 
from seeing the letter F. And then we added the minus. And some people are uncomfortable with the name, but I think that's a good thing. We are trying to shake people out of their comfort zone with it. And I have to say, I felt like we had done the right thing in the name when I began getting a mail addressed to me at F minus. And I know what it is, but even I would get this chill and I would think that I was in trouble and I had gotten a speeding ticket or I was being sued by some organization called F minus. But that's really what we need the lobbyists to feel. And that's what we need their other clients to feel to understand how dangerous it is to be working with these oil and gas people. Indeed. And by giving them a grade, you're identifying that they're like a student that's cheating, or you've also called them like a double agent. They're greenwashing their own activities by doing these other activities with beloved organizations, as you say, or on behalf of environmental organizations. But it's not the full story. And if you could unpack that a little bit. Right. So in state capitals, there will usually be a group of, they're called the top dog lobbyists, like the leader of the pack. And these are the people you hire if you want to get access to legislative leadership. And they can have some clients doing wonderful work for conserving green space or local charities or youth programs, but they also represent fossil fuel companies who are really the architects of the climate crisis. And these are people like ExxonMobil and Co companies and the American Petroleum Institute who knew this would happen. They knew the climate crisis would happen and they've been telling us that it won't and they've been telling us not to believe our own eyes. And right now in every state capital, they are doing everything they can to slow the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Now, the reason it's so insidious that they're able to represent both fossil fuel companies and all of these other groups doing wonderful things, charities, ballet companies, religious institutions, schools, it's really insidious because if you were a lobbyist and your only client was an oil and gas company, you would have a hard time getting a meeting with some legislators. You would be seen as a villain, as someone complicit in the crisis. But if you also represent a local school, a local charity, an environmental group, suddenly it's a different conversation and you are potentially a hero in the eyes of this legislator. You're someone representing the people of their district. You're bringing them hope and health and opportunity. And this is why it's so hard to raise awareness about the climate crisis. There is every temptation to take a break from all the bad news and the worry and just try to focus on the good news. And so confronted with one of these lobbyists, it is just morally and financially easy to just think about, well, they're doing other good things in my district. Let's not worry too much about this climate crisis. But here in the U.S. in this summer of extreme smoke events in much of the Midwest and the East Coast, I think things are so immediate now that people get it, but you just can't work with these people that it's very dangerous. Exactly. If they were lawyers and they couldn't even have a conversation with two litigants on opposite sides of the case, not even just to have a conversation, if they were consulted by one litigant, then they couldn't represent the other side. And so it seems really ridiculous. Is there not an actual law in place? And is there a possibility of creating a law or how, well, how is this allowed to happen? The only real law or taboo in place is that a lobbyist can't work for and against the same bill at the same time. But if you're talking about subject areas, if you're talking about someplace like Charleston, South Carolina, Beaufort, South Carolina, 
who face some of the worst flooding and sea level rise on the East Coast, those communities have fossil fuel lobbyists. But then, incredibly, at the same time, Charleston is actually suing the fossil fuel industry. So it's just an incompatible conflict of interest. The origin of this project actually goes to question, you know, how is this possible? Isn't there a rule or a law against this? I, you know, started lobbying 20 years ago and was working for smoke-free bars and restaurants in the state of Maryland and worked with a lobbyist for the American Lung Association and saw that he also worked for the Maryland automobile dealer. And when he wasn't pushing for smoke bars and restaurants, he was working to defeat legislation to restrict emissions from cars and require better gas mileage from cars. And so I challenged him about this. How can you do this? And he said, well, it's easy because cigarettes are indoor air and cars are outdoor air. And therefore it's not a conflict. And that kind of magical thinking, which I think got us into this mess on climate, that somehow you can have these conflicts or these dissonances and it's okay, but it's not. This is how we got into this space of thinking, well, as long as I can conserve some green space here, as long as I am personally virtuous and I compost and recycle, that that's going to help. And sure it does. But if all along your community has one of these lobbyists, it really negates a lot of the good things that are happening locally because it normalizes, it legitimizes the fossil fuel industry. Well, that's why your database is so clear and transparent and allows us to look at where those conflicts of interest. And I want to also say something that we have to look at even beyond the climate crisis and the lobbyists for the fossil fuel industries. I've come across national cancer associations then being funded by the Dairy Association, for instance, and then pushing and promoting diets that are laid in dairy, which I guess dairy in a certain amount can be okay, but it's also the way cattle are raised, that they're laden with hormones, which is just a proven cancer accelerant. So these conflict of interests are taking place, and that's just one example. So we really need to have greater transparency because we're getting advice from people who are doing harm to us, right? Right. And they have an incredible array of clients. And as you, you mentioned, it can be agriculture on the one hand, and then health groups, advocacy groups who are concerned about contaminants and food, climate impacts from the agriculture sector. And if the, the expert in any given state is always someone who represents both sides of the issue, the best result you're ever going to get is some kind of muddy compromise in the middle. I have been a lobbyist in a non-state capital and seen this happen over and over again. They will fight all year over a budget, over a climate bill, and it all comes down to having all the top players in a room together and the fossil fuel people are always there and we have to get them out of the room. It is too late. The crisis is moving too fast for us to continue to have these sort of 50-50 compromises. It is hard to get things through Congress, but this is what, you know, President Biden wound up doing here is this sort of half and half bill last year that does have more money for renewables, but it also has more money for fossil fuels. But it's too late to be doing that. We are ruined if that's the only way forward. Yes. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry is really bargaining with our future you know, while destroying the planet. And it's just so frustrating. It must be frustrating for you having all the data in front of you that lobbyists and PR firms are fundamentally, you know, they're doing work for hire. And their excuse is always to say they're there to do the bidding of their clients. There's no sense of responsibility 
And I think that at some point there has to be a kind of accountability because it's not just the right to have legal representation. It's really promoting things. And so they're in bed. They're part of the process disguising itself as a political speech or representing population. That's a really important point. And the comparison to lawyers is really important. The traditional defense of this lobbying practice is that somehow hiring a lobbyist is like hiring a lawyer and the guilt or innocence of your lawyer's other clients shouldn't affect your case. But that's not how lobbying works at all. It is all connected. And it's really more like hiring your own shadow state senator who has the ability to introduce legislation and get it passed. And what you are really doing is getting all of the political baggage that comes with that person that you are hiring. Trying to get this issue out there, it's something I've been working on for a long time, probably about 20 years. And, you know, as I mentioned, there are all these obstacles to doing this. It is hard to get the data. I think the words fossil fuels and lobbyists, all those are insufficiently alarming words. And then there's the fact that though many good progressive groups are actually complicit in this knowing or not, that also makes it hard to talk about because they are locked into these relationships that yes, the world may be falling apart, the other earth may be overheating, but have a lobbyist who's going to get them a grant for $100,000 this year, and they can bring that back to their board and they can use that to fundraise and their immediate future will be secure. And I have been in that position working at a small advocacy group, and I absolutely understand those imperatives and you have to move forward in any way you can. But I think we all need to wake up and realize that we are complicit in a system that is undermining much of the good things that we do on climate. So the challenge of how do you, how do you tell the story? How do you get it out there? I mentioned our name F minus it's trying to take what is a complicated thing and go with radical simplicity and boil it down to the simplest thing here, which is failure, which is that hiring one of these lobbyists is radical. The website, the database, we have tried to make it simple and fun in some ways. We've tagged the fossil fuel companies with the color pink. And you'll see we have a page for each date and the usual thing can be environmental devastation somewhere. And we have some of those, but for a lot of states, what we're actually going for is shock and cognitive dissonance by putting up the last thing they would expect to see. So for Pennsylvania, which is one of the worst states for these lobbyists, we have a photograph of the plush red interior of the Kimmel Center, the concert hall in downtown Philadelphia. And it's a ravishing scene and it's empty. And it's something that you would never associate with the fossil fuel industry, except the Kimmel Center has a lobbyist who also works for oil and gas interests. Yeah. And it's so important to have that transparency because it is a kind of shaming. If you're prepared to to take money from representing these fossil fuel companies, you should be prepared to just have that out in the open. And so you must have experiences working for environmental organizations. They'll never be able to have that kind of spend that the fossil fuel industry has. And they don't spend as much on communications or PR. It's like often run by volunteers. But on the other side of it, fossil fuel industry and their paid political agents, they go to business school, they study marketing science and cognitive science, and they use those skills against us. So they use the skills to sell products and they have this natural orientation to dominate and they know how to orientate their discussions with effective, sticky, memorable language and imagery. And I see that you're doing that with F minus, but they just have so much more in their artillery being able to outspend 
and this kind of, I would say, kind of ruthless mindset so that they get us to even question what we know about pollution and the dangers of chemicals or smoking, PFAS in the waters and the causes of global warming. And they've been waging this propaganda war against us for the last 50 years. So what is, with F- minus your strategies for dismantling this propaganda? Our strategy really comes to one thing, which is these oil and gas lobbyists will never wake up one morning and say, I am worried about the climate crisis. I'm worried about my children. I am going to cut it off with these oil and gas companies and stop taking their checks. That will never happen. And I'm sad to say this, and I don't mean to sound cynical, but it is a long, long road to try to change their behavior with facts or reason because as you just said there is this whole machine of propaganda that tries to just erase facts or come up with alternate facts or just flood them away or get people to a point where they're so overloaded that any more information whether it's true or false is just people can't process it anymore so the way to exert pressure on these lobbyists is through their wallets and having a boycott campaign where you get their other clients to pressure them and to fire them. And it's not like these lobbyists love oil and gas and coal so much. It's just easy money for them. And so they have to be forced to pick a side in the climate fight. And so if we are zeroing in on institutions in some of these states where they can be shamed. So right now I'm in Baltimore on the Johns Hopkins campus where I was a graduate student in writing. I went on to become a lobbyist in Annapolis and Hopkins is interesting because they're kind of uniquely exposed on this issue. They have a very strong relationship with Michael Bloomberg, who's one of the biggest funders of anti-coal work in the United States. And because of this, they voted to divest their endowment from coal, but they still have funds invested in oil and gas. And the amazing thing is they have lobbyists now who work for coal companies, which is completely at odds with Bloomberg's work and their whole relationship with him. So it's morally untenable from a PR standpoint, it's completely untenable and we're going to get people here to speak out. And I think Hopkins is someone we can use to drive a wedge between the oil and gas industry and some of these other lobbyists. I think another really important place for us is cultural institution. Um, and as you may have seen in some of the articles or the database, it's shocking who's complicit in this. It's the new museum in New York City, which is an amazing place and has all kinds of avant-garde work uh, about the climate crisis, but they are complicit in this. We tagged more than 50 museums around the country. And part of the strategy there is to shame them and to go to their trustees, to go to their donors and lay out what is really going on here. And the idea is that we will learn from the successful campaign to force museums to cut ties with donors from the fossil fuel industry. So you just said that the purpose of F- minus is mostly to put on that social pressure. Is there anything that can be done on a governmental level to help get rid of these fossil fuel lobbyists? Well, there should have been a database of all these lobbyists 20 years ago, just putting all the states together. So you can just, with a push of a button, say, I wonder how complicit Amazon is in this. And so with a button, you can click and you see that they have fossil fuel lobbyists in 27 states. Lobbying disclosure laws vary wildly from different systems that can't talk to each other, which is part of why it took us a long time to pull the data and to put it all together. So this is something that people can push for in the states, which is better disclosure of lobbyist activities. There are the nonsensical disclosure laws in some states where they don't actually report the lobbyist salary. 
they will just report gifts and meals. And so you can have a billion dollar company doing work in a state. And it, Illinois has laws like this, where you don't get the salary, you just get the gifts or the meals. And you can look up and you can say, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder what this billion dollar company is doing in Illinois, how much money are they spending? And you will look at a disclosure report and it will come back at like $79 because they had a steak dinner together and that's it. So there's a lot of information we still don't have. And part of this push will be trying to strengthen state disclosure laws to make it easier to tell these stories. Definitely. And you were talking about social pressure before and putting the pressure on these companies and these organizations to stop using the fossil fuel lobbyists. Do you think that the social pressure will be enough to stop these fossil fuel lobbyists when it comes down to social pressure versus fossil fuel money? So there's always this kind of dynamic of being right is not enough or having the facts on your side is not enough versus all the spending and the propaganda from the fossil fuel industry. I think for me, what is hopeful about having all of this data, every, every county government, every school district is that you can get very local and you can get to the point where community is small enough, people actually know each other. And that has incredible value. And that is something that an ExxonMobil or the Coke company can't buy, can't overcome necessarily. And so in our list, if you look at education, um, there are just hundreds of public school districts that have fossil fuel lobbyists. And so this is really interesting because it cuts across ideological lines. There may be liberal communities where people want there to be more spending on education. There could be conservative communities where they just want to lower taxes and they don't necessarily want that money going to the public schools. But what all of those people have in common is they're not going to like the fact that the school is just spending their own money, their tax dollars to hire a lobbyist whose fossil fuel work is resulting in fires in Washington state, in flooding in Florida, in drought, in Great Plains communities. And so I think there's a real teachable opportunity here working with some of those districts. We're looking at Washington state where there has been worsening wildfires and a real public health crisis from wildfire smoke. And of course, children are especially vulnerable to the smoke and are growing up now in a world where they're told can't go outside today, practice is canceled, have to wear the mask today, um, and they're still feeling sick. And there are 10 public school districts in Washington state that share lobbyists with the fossil fuel industry. And this is something where I believe strongly we go and talk to folks in these communities and explain it, it will become easy to pressure these districts to drop these lobbyists. And as we talk about this, one of the main questions that comes to mind for me is why is this happening? How much do you think that groups that hire fossil fuel lobbyists, for example, cultural institutions and higher education groups, like you were just talking about, are aware that they are hiring people that also work for the fossil fuel industry to lobby for their own concerns? That is a great question. And I've been working on this project for several years. And honestly, it's still unimaginable to me that some of these local groups facing so many impacts of the climate crisis are doing this. And how is this happening? They're really, there are two answers. They haven't really done due diligence on their lobbyists. They haven't looked at the list of their other clients or they have, and they've decided that it's worth the risk or it's worth the trade-off. Going back to the comparison with hiring a lobbyist versus hiring a lawyer, this is where law firms are more diligent about flagging conflict with lobbying firms. The only one really policing them is the lobbying firm itself. And so when they take on a local conservation group, let's say that's trying to preserve green space, and they also have 
a fracking company where water and air pollution from fracking projects is damaging green space elsewhere in the state, entirely up to the lobbying firm, whether or not this is a conflict and whether this is doable. And so for a small group, not a lot of resources, they don't have time to be in one of these state capitals, going to all these meetings, taking everybody out for dinner. It, it is tempting to distrust that you know, alpha lobbyists coming to you and making all these promises that they're going to get you a meeting and they're going to pass your bill. And they're really, they're being led down the garden path and it's not true. And what we're trying to do with this database is to wake people up and pull aside the curtain and show what's really going on. James Browning is on a mission to start something powerful the end of the era of fossil fuel lobbyists. For too long, the governing system in the U.S. has been corrupted by fossil fuel lobbyists and their seemingly unlimited funds. But, like James Browning said, there are lots of things that big oil companies and their investors can't buy. One of the most important of these is community. The importance and the power of community simply cannot be overstated. When communities band together, great things can happen. Laws can be passed, like when New York communities came together to push for the landmark climate law that was passed in 2019. Divestment can occur all over the country. Communities come together to successfully fight off pipelines and new oil and gas construction, like the Brooklyn communities at No North Brooklyn Pipeline, or the Memphis communities that successfully fought off the Bihalia Pipeline, or most recently, the climate victory in Ecuador, where the Ecuadorian people voted to protect the Yasuni National Park and halt Ecuador's largest oil project. These stories of communities banding together to fight against the fossil fuel industry give me hope that with James Browning's newest database, F-, that armed with information, communities and people will do the right thing and fire their fossil fuel lobbyists, helping us all take one step closer to a fossil-free future. And now, back to the episode. And obviously, F Linus is an organization that works mostly on the U.S. So I wanted to ask you, is this a uniquely American problem? And if so, why is that? Well, I think that getting the information is a uniquely American problem because I think there is such a strong culture of each state just doing its own thing. And frankly, some states just having very, very poor disclosure of what's going on. And what's been really exciting since we launched at the beginning of July has been probably the number one question people bring to us is, when are you going to do this for Canada or the EU or the UK? or Australia. And I have looked at those lists and they each have everybody already in a spreadsheet, which it took us ages to do for the U.S. So those lists are out there waiting for someone to dive into those icy waters and see what they can find. But I think once they do, and once they expose some of these relationships, you can't put it back in the box. And so the idea here is that in the future, Every time someone is thinking of signing on with a lobbyist, we want them to be asking, yes, but what are they doing on climate? And we want the lobbyists to be thinking, well, sure, I can take this oil and gas money, but do I really want to deal with getting an F minus from all of these climate groups? And then do I want to deal with all of my current clients calling me up and complaining about it? So once you get this information out, it is free. You can't put it back. You can't hide it again. And we're hoping to see other groups pick up this issue in other places, UK, EU, Australia, and Canada. 
Well, that's exciting to know that it's at least easier in these other parts of the world. And so that's a kind of challenge for anyone out there listening. And maybe you can provide, I don't know if you have links to some of the databases, but again, it has to be presented in a way that can be easily shared. But I'm really excited about this idea of just being a ratings agency. So before you take on anyone, what's their rating? And if they have a F minus, don't deal with them. You send your money elsewhere. It's also a little bit disturbing that where you feel that your money is being spent by someone who's efficient as an insider, that they may be using you to kind of Trojan horse their larger fossil fuel clients, like you're the dressing on the cake, a little bit of icing, but you're not the main meal and you're not being best represented. Oh, that's a great metaphor. There was a fascinating article in The Guardian about ExxonMobil having an employee who had his own office on the campus of Princeton University. And all he did was go to classes and just sort of sit in the back and wander around campus and listening to people. And so what was this Exxon mobile person, you know, doing at, at Princeton? It was listening to what these Ivy League students were saying about climate and about fossil fuels. And it's just one example of fossil fuel industry. They are very good at propaganda. They are also very good students of environmentalists and they understand how to manipulate them and how to push their buttons and how to disguise their own activities. And the, one of their best tactics is to surround themselves with museums, with hospitals, with charities, with public schools, and all of these groups who are doing wonderful work at the local level and who aren't going to complain about their oil and gas lobbyists because that person is bringing back money to them as well. And so again, it is tempting to go for the short-term gain, but what we need these other groups to understand is that they are complicit in a scheme that is ruining us, that is pushing us past the point of no return on climate. The other thing I, I was going to say about how can you ask some of these questions in Canada, EU, and elsewhere, that this is a good strategy for the U.S. trying to divest from these lobbyists, get their other clients to fire them, because unfortunately, some of the other strategies we keep running into the same problems, which is the U.S. has gone so far backwards on democracy issues around money and politics and Citizens United that it's going to take decades now to move the Supreme Court to a better place. So all the work passing legislation and fighting in the courts need to continue. But the reality here in the U.S. is that the political system is so completely broken. And in many ways, the laws that we came up with, the ideas that we came up with in the late 1700s, that we need some new solutions. You know, right now, trying to control the, the spending by the industry or trying to pass bills, that's going to continue and that will take years. But this opportunity to rise up and fire the fossil fuel lobbyists, it, it's something people can do right now. They don't have to pass a law. They don't have to file a lawsuit. They don't have to go to the Supreme Court. They can do it right now. And so all of these groups, especially these small groups, actually have a lot of power here and they have a lot of untapped potential to push back and to fight back against the industry. Indeed, we do have a lot of power if we reclaim it. And people have said that climate change is actually a crime scene, the murder or the attempted murder of this beautiful planet. And I think the people muddy the waters as well because they feel like, oh, they use fossil fuels to a certain degree. They're kind of dependent or they drive their car, they heat their house. But for years, we've been lied to about it. And the fossil fuel companies have corrupted the very political process. There's this sense of guilt. 
people that don't want to speak up because in some ways we're all addicted to energy, no matter how much we like to conserve. None of us are carbon neutral completely. So how do you get people to embrace the project without that sense of guilt that can sometimes lead to silence and inactivity? Right. In the U.S., it often feels like we have the worst of the world where people feel a sense of dread and hopelessness about climate, but don't know what to do or have decided that there's in fact nothing to be done. And so coming to this work with a background as a writer and also like designing games focused on climate, I feel like one of the first challenges is that we have to make it more fun. And this is hard because it's so serious and it can be so dreary, frankly, working on some of these campaigns year after year or going to a state capitol and sitting out some state senator's office for hours and hours trying to get a meeting with them. But if you just, if you see the way just children, how they solve problems or if they're bored, what do they do about it? Maybe they break the rules of a game or they come up with a new game entirely. And suddenly, instead of everyone sitting around feeling like this is hopeless, what do I do? You are all, you are building something together and it becomes like more of a moment of possibility. And that's, so that's part of what we're trying to do with F minus. I mean, if you look at the data, it is shocking and it is different and it's not the usual climate stories and, you know, ski resorts in the United States are complicit. In the ski resorts, you know, losing their snow, going out of business because of the climate crisis, continue to have oil and gas lobbyists. If you look at Park City, Utah, which actually the city has one of the best local climate plans in the country, but the city has several fossil fuel lobbyists. All three of the nearby ski resorts have fossil fuel lobbyists. And the Sundance Film Institute, which is based in Park City, which has sponsored and promoted films about the climate crisis. The Sundance Institute has a lobbyist who also works for fossil fuel companies. So it is shocking for people to hear this. I would understand if someone felt even more discouraged hearing that some of these supposedly good groups are actually complicit in this, but it's a moment of waking up, I think, and seeing things clearly. And that's a very hopeful thing. And I just want to go into that a little bit more. Is there a differentiation in your grading system for when a lobbyist works for two different, maybe a cultural organization, but isn't maybe getting sponsorship from a fossil fuel company, but they share a spokesperson, but I mean that there might be a little bit of separation. And I'm wondering, because I've interviewed the new museum, so I guess I didn't know that they had that sponsorship from the fossil fuel industry. I've always believed the Sundance organizations, because I've interviewed some of their educational directors and cultural directors, had its heart in the right place, but might not know about it. So is there a way to differentiate for the fact that maybe, I mean, I think that now that they're made aware of them, they can switch a lobbyist, or maybe that they hired a lobbyist who, just because they've been in the industry a long time, will at one stage have represented a fossil fuel company because they're the biggest clients, but they might be hiring their expertise. I would see that as a way that they explained their connection to those lobbyists. Do you allow for that nuance and for the organizations then to improve their rating or for people to understand? Yes, there are two scenarios here. There's personally having a lobbyist who also works on fossil fuel interests, and that's the case with the New Museum, or it was the case with the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And then the second scenario is you have a lobbyist who personally doesn't have any fossil fuel clients, but their firm does. The other lobbyist at that firm 
these clients. And this has been the case, for example, with the city of Baltimore using a firm whose other lobbyists work for ExxonMobil, who Baltimore is doing over the climate crisis. So that's an important distinction to make, but F minus is saying that it is wrong to be working with a firm that has fossil fuel clients at all, that you are playing right into their hands, that you are legitimizing the firm by giving them your business. You're saying that it is okay to have oil and gas clients at this firm, that this is a normal, acceptable thing, and it's not. And the only way to get them to change their behavior is economic pressure and is to fire them. I like that strong stance. And then they'll have to just go all in or then change their clients and vote with their conscience. And so you've mentioned the use of games, and I know that you and your brother have designed this Monopoly hack. Tell us a little more about that. So I have a younger brother and we spent what seems like our entire childhood playing board games or Dungeons and Dragons or other games. And I think neither of us really ever grew out of that or perhaps never grew up. And so still see sort of everything in some ways as a game and it should be more fun. And actually in the case of the climate crisis, it should be winnable. There should be a, a way to to fix this thing. And when I had kids of my own, I started playing Monopoly with them and there's the, a certain frustration with that game because it's actually kind of boring and it's just not realistic. It's not the way the world works. And there's a sense of your actions in the game don't have real consequences. And especially in the world now where we see that kind of capitalism run amok is one of the causes of the climate crisis. So my brother and I decided to hack monopoly sort of a climate hack and took out the usual set of chance community chest cards and designed new cards they're called last chance cards and they introduced things like fracking and floods and fires and bankruptcies and other climate impact into the game so for example you know if you draw the fracking card and you own a property where fracking is legal. And I think at the time we made the cards, those states were Illinois, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Then you got an immediate infusion. You got $1,000 for selling the right to fracking on your land. So great, you got $1,000, but then you incur a $50 penalty every turn because of the health impacts or the negative impacts of fracking on your property. So eventually you've lost all that money you got from signing the fracking and you're just getting sicker and sicker and poorer and poorer. Indeed, the true wealth is in, measured in many ways. And how can you be considered to be winning, you know, at life if you're just poisoning the planet and those around you and accumulating wealth off the back of that cannot feel good. You've been talking a lot about standing up for the planet and speaking up on climate change. But as you think about what this is all for and protecting this planet, you think about the beauty and the wonder of the natural world and you have children. And as you think about the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what is your message for young people that you would like them to know, preserve and remember? Well, one thing I love, I have two kids and just love about kids is how they can immediately spot an adult who is lying or is wrong or is just saying something that is not real. And as we get older, a lot of us lose touch with that. And I think it's a beautiful thing to have that. And however, young people go to work on the climate crisis or as artists or whatever passion you have, it is just so important to hold on to that.
And even if someone is paying you, even if someone is promising promotions and jobs and, and titles, that sense of truth of true north, like what is right to you is, is the most important thing to, to hold on to. And so I just hope, I hope anyone going into the climate movement or the arts or other fields can find a way to hold on to that. And it can be hard because the climate crisis is so scary, but it, that is such a good guiding star to have. Yes, indeed. And in this monopoly of life, you win when you go with your heart and with your sense of social responsibility. So thank you, James Browning, for bringing to light how lobbyists and fossil fuel companies have extended their reach into almost every aspect of American life, from government, corporations, cultural institutions, universities, and advocacy groups, earning an F- minus in environmental responsibility. And so that now, armed with this information and your database, we can move forward and do better. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Great to be with you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Mall with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Evelyn Mall. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Fung. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.